Well, this morning, we're going to finish Jesus' prayer to his Father. As Christ prays to the Father about one of the important ingredients, elements to the Christian life. It's not only important, but most important. That ingredient, that element, is God's love. To live in God's love is to know God's love. And to know God's love is to then show God's love. But before we head down that pathway, before we head down that road to love, James Montgomery Boyce asks the most intriguing question. He asks us to consider what Christianity would be like without love. I think we'd all surmise, we'd all conclude that Christianity without love would no longer be Christianity, right? But let's entertain this idea, this thought, just for a minute by looking at what happens to elements of Christianity that is without love. For example, what if we took love out of biblical joy? What would we have left? What would joy turn into? And the answer is hedonism. The pursuit of pure self-centered pleasure, self-indulgence, self-gratification, with a desire always to want more. What happens when we take love away from holiness? What do we have? I'll give us a hint. Jesus had the least amount of patience with these folks that were full of this. Of course, I'm talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were full of what is known as self-righteousness and pride. Let's look at one more. What happens when we take love out of truth? We get dead doctrine. We get bitter orthodoxy or hard and fast rules that have no life. Truth without love leads to obedience motivated from a heart that is full of fear, worry, dread. Without love, God would never give us such grace. Without love, God would have not sacrificed so much for us. Without love, God would have not allowed his son to pay the ultimate sacrifice for us. Without love, God would not allow us to spend eternity with him in heaven. But we know that Christianity isn't without love because God is not without love. God is just the opposite. He is full of love. He is the source of love. He is the one who pours out his love on us this morning. Oh, how we should rejoice. How we should praise him because our God, our King, our Lord, our Savior is love. Let's open our Bibles this morning, John 17, 23 through 26. John 17, 23 through 26. And I've entitled this message, Living in God's 
love. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for another day that we can glorify you, Father. Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts transformed by the love of Christ. Help us to pour that love on everyone around us. We thank you for this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John 17, starting at verse 23, Jesus says this, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And you might recall last week I ended on this verse as we saw that Jesus was petitioning the Father. Jesus was asking the Father to give the children of God unity. Jesus asks that they have the same unity that the Father and Son have had for all eternity past. But at the end of verse 23, Jesus says something crucial. He says something that we can't miss. He says something more astonishing than having unity, even like the Trinity. He says our unity will show the gravity of God's love for us. We learn just how much God loves us in this passage. I mean, many of us know that God loves us because of as what John 3.16 tells us, right? But the question is, to what degree does God love us? What level does God love us? How deep or far does the Father's love go for us? Let's listen to the end of verse 23 to find out how much God does love us. Jesus says again, Loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says, You, the Father, love your children as you loved me. In other words, the Father loves us like he loves Christ. Which leads to point number one. We are loved to the same degree of love as the Son. Let me say that again. We are loved to the same degree of love as the Son. This is one of those points that we need to just sit and soak in for a moment. We need a minute to really wrap our minds around what Jesus is actually saying to us here. Jesus says, we are loved with the same degree, the same amount, the same level, the same intensity as he has loved himself, as Christ is loved. We aren't God's mistreated children. We aren't God's children that he just entertains and pushes to the side. But the Father loves us equally as he loves his very own son. I wonder how many of us realize the degree the level, the gravity, the reality of how much God loves us this morning. This love that we are talking about is for the church. So we are loved collectively as a whole. We are called the bride of Christ. But the question is, who makes up the church? Who makes up the church? And of course, It is those who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith 
in Christ Jesus. So the church is a group of individuals made up as the the body of Christ. That means that God loves us individually. He loves each of us personally. He is involved in our lives. He knows us. He takes care of us. He loves you. He loves me to the point that he knows the very hairs on our heads. He loves us so much that it says in Psalm 139 that he formed us and shaped us and knew us fully before we were ever born or even thought of. God's nature is relational and he continues to desire that intimate relationship with us. But some of us might be thinking, why would God love me? Why would he love me? Why would God love me before I was in Christ? I was too sinful. I was damaged goods. I was too awful. I was too tainted for him to actually love me. And in a sense, this is true, right? We, are all, we have all been a mess before we are in Christ. All of us were stained and darkened by sin. We all were impure. We are all downright Worthless, the Bible says. None of us were worthy of God's love. So you might be thinking then, what is the criteria? What is about us then that drew God to love us before we came to Christ? I mean, is it because, is it because we have really good personalities? Is it because we tried to help others or we tried to follow the rules and regulations that we knew? Or was it because we tried to give to other people? Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here we see that God's love wasn't based on our behavior or on our good works, but it says that he loved us even when we were still sinners, when we were still rebelling, when we were still enemies of the cross. As we think of how God loves us as children, let me ask those of us who are parents, why do we love our children? Is it based on their abilities or their talents or how good or bad they were. For example, I have to admit, Luke, our oldest, had a better week than Joby, our youngest. So for this week, I loved Luke a little bit more than I loved, you, loved Joby. I mean, that's how it works, right? We love the child who has the best behavior, who has the better personalities, who works harder than the others, Right? Of course not, right? That's not, that's not true. The reason we love our children is because they are our children. God has lent these little souls to us for a brief period of time on this earth. And God has placed within us an overwhelming natural love for those that are considered our children. And this leads to point number two. God loves us because we are his Point number two says that God loves us because we are his. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus says that no one comes to him as Lord and Savior unless God the Father has first said, he or she is mine. God takes ownership of us. God has chosen us. In Ephesians it says, he chose us before the foundations of the earth. And these are the ones that God loves like he loves his very own son. But let's reread John 17, 23 to show that Jesus does distinguish his love for his people versus those that are still in the world. John 17, 23 again, Jesus says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus says, the unity that we have as believers will show the world how much the Father truly does love us. And this love is not a generic love as we've mentioned, but as we've seen, God's love is specific. It is the same love, again, that he has for his son. But Jesus goes on to say in John 17, 24, by saying this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Again, we see the ownership. Jesus says, those that the Father have given me, let them see my glory. But the question is, what exactly is Jesus asking? What is Jesus talking about when he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me? What is he saying? Well, we know it can't mean where he is going next because what happens to Christ right after he prays to the Father? He's betrayed by Judas, imprisoned, and brutally crucified. So Christ isn't talking about what happens immediately. He knows that his relationships with his friends is about to be severed, right? It's about to be pulled apart as he faces his own imminent death on the cross. So Jesus pleads to God about God's children to be with him in glory, in heaven. Those that are the fathers who have been bought by the blood of Christ will be with Christ for all eternity. I mean, think about that just for a minute. Think about what's going on. Christ is about to face beatings, tortures beyond what we can imagine. And finally, he will face this painful death, and not only that, but face the wrath of God. And he pleads to the Father about having fellowship with God's elect when he gets to heaven. question is, what motivates Christ to plea with the Father to have relationship with us in heaven? But before we answer that question, let me ask another question. What often is behind our grief and sadness when we lose someone close and dear to us? What causes us to have such pain and sorrow when we lose someone we cared about? What motivates us to want that relationship to be reunited? And the answer is love. The answer is love. Some of you have lost a spouse. And let me say, I can't imagine how painful that must be, how hard 
where you had a life together, where you lived life daily together, where you went through trials together, where you experienced blessings together, where you had plans and goals together. And one day, that person is now gone. They knew what you enjoyed. They knew what you liked. They knew all your quirks and your idiosyncrasies, right? They knew your flaws. They knew your silliness. They knew you at such a deep level. They knew you like no one else knew you. And the longing to be with them once again, the desire to be with them again, is motivated from a heart of love. Which leads to point number three. Christ's desire to be with us in eternity is motivated from a heart of love. Let me say that again. Christ's desire to be with us in eternity is motivated from a heart of love. Richard Phillips says this, Jesus does not merely say he wills for his people to enter into heaven, but expresses his desire that they may be with me. I wonder if that floors us, that Christ wants relationship with us because of his great love for us. I mean, we've probably all have had times when we are around somebody who we don't feel worthy to have relationship with or be in the presence of, and yet God, God of the universe, wants relationship with us. God wants relationship with us, again, because of his love. And it's not just shown in what he says, but Christ just in a few days later will demonstrate his love. He will display his love for all of God's children by dying for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see here that Christ went to the cross because, again, of his great love. Christ didn't just talk about how much he loved us, but he put his love into action. He gave himself up for us. But let's go back to our main section as we are now in John 17, verses 25 and 26. It's our final two passages of Christ's prayer to his Father. And Jesus says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the question is, how does Jesus say he will continue to share the Father's love with the children of God? Did Christ say he will ask the Father to just give us more love, just fill us up to the brim like we fill up a glass of water? 
Or did Christ say he will ask the Father to put loving people in our life to encourage us, to give us examples of what it looks like to truly love others? Or did Jesus say he will talk to the Father to help remind us of our blessings as our thankfulness towards God will lead us to love him more? Is that what Jesus just said? Well, our passage tells us, right, how Christ will help give us more love for the Father. Let's read it again. John 17, 25, and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says in our passages that the way he is growing us is love is to make the Father, make God known to us. We see our love for God is equated, it's associated to our knowledge of God. Which leads to point number four. Knowing God leads to a deeper love for God. Knowing God leads to a deeper love for God. John 17, 26, Jesus says, I made known to them your name. So the question is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I made your name, the Father's name, known to them? What is he talking about? Was it like the disciples and Jesus were sitting around the dinner table and Jesus says, I need to tell you guys something. It's really important. I need to tell you who made the earth. I need to tell you who sent me. It's my father, known as God. Is that how it went? I mean, it has to refer to more than just the literal name of God because the disciples, before they knew Christ, were already good Jews who knew and followed the Old Testament. They knew the name of God. Making God's name known here refers to more than just sharing the name of God with them, but it speaks more about revealing God's character and revealing God's attributes to God's people. Richard Phillips again says, in Jesus' understanding, knowing who God is, what God is like, and what God has done is incalculable blessing. Jesus revealed what was otherwise hidden about God to us. It's making God known not only in name, but who he is. It's making God real. It's giving us clarity of what God is like. It's taking the blinders off of our, our eyes and allowing us to see the glory, the magnificence, the power, the greatness of God the Father. But how did Christ make God the Father known to the disciples and to us? How did he do that? Jesus says on numerous occasions, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Thank you, thank you. I, didn't want, I was afraid someone was going to leave me hanging here, right? Seen the Father. Christ's life was lived to honor and glorify the Father. So whatever he did, whatever he said, was to make the Father known to God's people. 
Whatever he did was to give attention to his father, to show us how the father was and who he is. I wonder this morning if we are growing in our knowledge of God. Does our view of God grow as Christ shows us more of who the Father is? Are we spending time getting to know the Father in God's word? Are we spending time getting to know the Father in prayer? Are we spending time getting to know the Father by being involved in the local church, being involved in a community, growing in our relationship with one another? Because Scripture says that's how you know the Father. The next question you might be thinking is why? Why would knowing God lead us to love? That's a good question. Why would knowing God give us more love in our marriage or in our workplace or with our church family? Why does having an intimate, personal relationship with God lead us to love? Well, that leads to point number five. God is the source of love. Point number five says that God is the source of love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. He is the source. He is the fountain. He is love. Without God, we don't have or even know what love is. We often think, I need to be more loving, so we try to serve or help others. Or we just try to be more sensitive to other people's needs or wants. And that is good. But from what we just read, we see that God is the ultimate source of love. So we will grow. We will be filled up with love if we know God. We will mature in love as we sit at the Father's feet. So as we drink from the cistern, which is God, we become filled with who he is, which is love. So words like doctrine and theology shouldn't give us heartburn. They shouldn't cause us to, to flinch or wince. But instead, theology should give us joy. Theology should give us goosebumps. Because these are just words that simply mean to know God on a deeper, higher, greater level. Without theology, which simply means the study of God, we can't know God. We are ignorant of who God is. So it's important to recognize that a deeper relationship with God equals a deeper study of who God is as well. So when we are reading God's word, when we are praying to God, when we are sitting in our quiet time with our Bibles in our hands, we should be doing our devotions, our studies, to first and foremost know our sovereign God. I wonder this morning if we know God, if we are growing in our love for God, which is, dis in, is displayed in how we love other people, right? 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
We see here the biblical love is equated to being involved, to being in fellowship. Again, to have real relationship with other believers in the local church. That's why it's so important to be members of a local church. It's paramount that we are growing in this love with each other. We see that those who love are those who know God, who know God. But you may be thinking, okay, I got this. I need to really love other brothers and sisters in our community. I need to display the love of God to my family, in my homes, to my spouse. I need to really start showing this love of God to my friends. But the question is, what does it look like? What is God's love? What does biblical love look like? What are more some of the characteristics of biblical love? So let's begin the show of the characteristics of biblical love by going back to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul the Apostle says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What we see from this section that Christ gave up his life willingly. He gave up everything he had for us because, again, for his great love for us. But even more important, even more higher than his love for us was the fact that he obeyed and glorified and followed the plan of his father. So Christ first sacrificed himself to please God the Father above all else. Even love us. This leads to characteristic number one. Biblical love is motivated from a heart that wants to please God. Biblical love is motivated from a heart that wants to please God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So Paul here says that our overarching goal, our ambition, our aim, should be to please God in whatever we're doing, in all of life. And similarly for us, biblical love starts with a desire, a passion to please God. So as we work, we work to please God. As we play, we play to please God. As we spend time in relationship, we should be doing it to please God, right? The question is, are we living our lives to please God? Or are we living our lives to please self? This is the difference between biblical love and worldly love. Biblical love says, I am here to please God, while worldly love says, I am here to please myself. Biblical love lifts up God while worldly love lifts up self. Biblical love lives for God and others while worldly love lives for self. Again, it is a matter of who we are loving. Are we loving God or are we loving ourselves? But let's move forward and share the next characteristic of biblical love. Characteristic number two. Biblical love gives what is best toward another. Biblical love gives what is best toward another. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. We see here that God gave. He gave what was most precious, what was, what was most important to him, what was best, right? I wonder what it looks like for us to give our best in our relationships. What happens in our marriages when we give our spouse our best? When we give our spouse our best, what does that look like when we are listening to them? What, when we give our spouse our best, what does that look like when we are in conflict with them? When we are giving our spouse our best, what does that look like when we put their needs and wants above our own? Well, the next characteristic of a biblical love looks at what drives us. Are we driven or controlled by God's word or are we controlled by our emotions and feelings? Characteristic number three, biblical love acts regardless of feelings. Biblical love acts regardless of feelings. Biblical love follows or obeys God's word regardless of feelings and emotions because ultimately we are called to love God more than we love ourselves. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, John 14, 23. Jesus says our love for him will be revealed in how we follow God's word. If I have to have good feelings or emotions to obey God, then I ask, who am I truly following? course, the answer is self, again. I feel a little bad because I have left out this group of folks for a long time, our poor teenagers. I've not mentioned them in any of my sermons in I don't know how long. So I think it's time for me to, to bring them in. What does it actually look like when teens practice biblical love regardless of how they feel? It looks like the teenager who says, I need to obey my parents more than get my own way. It looks like the teenager who says, I need to show respect and honor to adults even when I don't want to. It looks like the teenager who happily does their chores even when they would rather be doing something else. See, you guys have to have your teenagers in church, right? But well, we could also talk about the fact that biblical love is quick to forgive. Biblical love builds up others. But I'm running out of time, and I'm going to end by giving us a long run-on sentence that I often use in biblical counseling to describe biblical love. And here it is. Biblical love is a commitment or decision to do what is best for another person actively sacrificially, unconditionally, regardless of feelings, to the glory of God. Let me say that again. Biblical love is a commitment or a decision to do what is best for another person actively, sacrificially, unconditionally, regardless of feelings, to the glory of God. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time, but I want everybody to say it with me. Are we ready? You guys have been very motivated and active in the sermon, so we ready? Okay. 
Biblical love is a commitment or a decision to do what is best for another person actively, sacrificially, unconditionally, regardless of feelings, to the glory of God. Amen. You guys, great job. Good. But I would encourage us this week to memorize this definition of biblical love. If we would just take 15 minutes a day and learn this rich definition, it would really help us out in life. It would be great for our families to work on in family devotionals, right? And as you are memorizing it together, then discuss it. What does biblical love mean? What does it look like to practice biblical love with other people? What does biblical love look like in my marriage? What does it look like in our friendships, in our homes, even with our enemies, right? And finally, I would love to see us put this definition into action, into practice, bring it to life. What are some of the ways that, what are some examples of how we are practicing biblical love in our own lives? If you're married, I would encourage us to take some time and write 20 ways you can show your spouse biblical love. And then begin to implement them. I wonder what this would do to our marriages. I wonder what this would do to our relationships. I wonder what this would do to our church family. Well, biblical love reveals our love for God. And our love for God is revealed in how we treat one another. May we passionately desire to know God as the Holy Spirit builds us up in love. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We are in awe of your love for us. We deserve nothing, and you give us everything. You give us your son. You give us God. And you let God live inside of us, the Holy Spirit. Thank you for such love. Thank you for such a plan. Help us just to be filled up to the brim with love and just let that pour all over and spill out all over those around us. That they see the love of Christ living inside of us as believers. Help us to be loving like Christ. We thank you for what you are doing in your church. In Christ's name, amen.